Welcome to the Oxford Comment. I'm Michelle, and Lauren is on vacation, but I promise you she will return in the new year. As you know, there is a very important birthday this Saturday. That's right, December 25th marks the birth of jazz legend Cab Calloway. He would be turning 103. So to celebrate, this entire episode is dedicated to Cab and the jazz age. To get things started, I'm here with jazz critic and BBC producer Alan Shipton, who is author of Heidi Ho, The Life of Cab Calloway, published by Oxford this fall. Hi, Alan. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's uh, very interesting for me because you're there in New York and I'm here in the depths of rural France looking at a bright, sunny day. Oh, wonderful. It is cold and miserable here in New York, and it's actually supposed to snow today. So many probably remember Calloway from the 1980 film The Blues Brothers, and I thought it would be fun to start with a clip from the soundtrack. Uh, Here's Calloway performing the song he's probably the most famous for, Minnie the Moocher, which in 1931 was the first jazz album to sell over one million copies. Alan, do you want to tell us more about this song and how it launched Cab's career? Well, it really did. And he came up with the idea, I think, probably by listening to his sister, Blanche Calloway, performing a very similar routine on stage for Night After Night when they were on tour in the 1920s. Anyway, this song was one that he started to sing when he arrived at the Cotton Club at the beginning of the 1930s. And in March 1931, he and his agent, Irving Mills, put together the final version of the song and they went into the studio and recorded it. And almost immediately... It was a big hit, and everything we heard him do there in the Blues Brothers, the way he got the audience to sing back Heidi Hi, Hody Ho with him, was something that he started doing at the Cotton Club in the 30s. And it wasn't just audiences in the club that joined in, it was audiences all across America on the radio. And suddenly Cab went from being just a band leader in First Chicago and New York to being a national star whose reputation was made on the radio. And in your book... You, you credit him with being the torchbearer in bridging the gap between African-American jazz and popular entertainment. Yes, I think he's one of the very small number of entertainers that did this. Perhaps Louis Armstrong had beaten him slightly to the post because Louis made that same transition around the same time, the end of the 1920s, beginning of the 30s. But Cab somehow or another bridged the gap in a way that very, very few other entertainers did. And he did it because this was good time entertainment. Remember, he was making his reputation after the Wall Street crash during the Great Depression, and people wanted to be cheered up. And having an irrepressible dancer and singer singing Heidi Ho on the radio and getting everybody to join in and sing back with him in theatres, in tobacco warehouses, in dances, this was something that went counter to the real spirit of depression that was going on at the time. And I think that had a lot to do with his success. You just mentioned Louis Armstrong, and in your book you you talk about what you call the Chicago era in Calloway's life, and there he actually became friends with Louis Armstrong, and you said that he played a strong role in Calloway's career. What Louis brought to the party was he showed Cab how to be an entertainer. 
Louis was a superb instrumentalist, which was something that Cab never was. But Cab had other things that Louis didn't have. He was a great dancer and he was a great showman. If you watch the films of Louis in the 1920s, 1930s, you'll see a man who really focuses on playing the trumpet. He didn't become the easy entertainer that he was in later life until quite a bit later on. But mm. Cab, from the very moment you first see him on screen in 1932-33, is easy and comfortable with the camera. And I think he learnt this art of entertaining, at least partly from Louis, and then overtook him. You mentioned earlier how one of the reasons he became so big when he did was because the United States had you know, just suffered the crash on Wall Street and people needed something to bring up their spirits. And you know, Cab came on and he was the perfect entertainer. He was, if you watch videos, you can just see how fun it would have been to be a member of that audience. Um, but at the same time, this was at a time when we were still very segregated and there were a lot of racial tensions in the country. And I'm wondering how you think he was able to bridge this gap. Why was he able to do this? What was it about this man? Well, there are two sides to that, Michelle. One is, of course, that like any African-American entertainer from that period, he didn't entirely bridge that gap until well after the civil rights movement of the 1960s. But what he did do was, in the 1930s and 40s, make music that appealed to an audience that was colourblind. I mean, if you were turning on your radio and you heard Cab singing about Minnie the Moocher or Magnolia's Wedding Day or any of these other great songs from that era, you wouldn't have known whether he was black or white. You'd have just thought this was a great entertainer. Hmm. And there was something about his charisma as a performer that carried across to audiences both black and white. But more seriously, the other side of what Cab did was after his first really quite disastrous experience of touring in the South where they were equipped with terrible old buses that didn't work properly and they had to stay in the roughest of hotels, they couldn't use the same restrooms as white people, Cab vowed from then on that he was always going to do things in the first-class way for his band and until the end of the big band era in the late 1940s, he succeeded in doing that. They had their own private train so that when they were travelling in the South they could return to relative luxury and proper toilets and running water and things, things that they couldn't rely on in hotels. And this was something that Cab pioneered. I mean, the only other band of the time that did this was the Ellington Orchestra, same management, Irving Mills. Right. And I think Cab went a lot further afield than the Ellington band in trying to take his music to the largest possible public. So, in a way, he was pioneering the idea that African-American musicians could perform with dignity anywhere in the South, and they always dressed extraordinarily well. They always looked very hip and very slick, and I think this was the way in which he counted it. But, as you'll also know from the book, there was one moment when he walked through the front door of a dance hall in the early 1940s to go and hear Lionel Hampton, and he was thrown out by the police, and the altercation that ensued, Cab actually got a fractured skull from the policeman beating him over the head. Mm. He successfully sued the theatre later on, but it didn't say much that when your light name could be up in lights on Broadway and all over the United States, that you could still be thrown out of a dance and beaten on the head by a white policeman. Wow. Now, you just talked about how Cab was a pioneer for African-American artists, and in your book you discuss his influence on hip-hop, and I believe one of the examples you give is Tupac? Well, I think what you find in a number of 
artists from the later period, I mean, Outcast in particular, there are two things that completely influence them. One is obviously the music and sampling Cab's work and finding different ways of representing it. The other is his appearance. Cab was one of the most urbane entertainers from the 1930s right through till the 1990s when he died. He always presented himself immaculately, whether he was wearing his white tie and tails or whether he was wearing his famous many-coloured suits of blue and yellow and grey and everything else. And what we find with the hip-hop artists who are influenced by Cab is that in the photos that, that go with their videos or their uh, re-recordings of the songs from Cab's era, they are dressed to match. And Cab sort of created a language of his own, and he wrote this dictionary called the Hepster Dictionary, I think, in 1940. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, there are two reasons for this. I think every jazz musician in the, 90, in the United States in the 1930s had a private language, which was known as jive talk. This is a way that bands could talk in code to one another about their audiences, about people who are coming into the club or a theatre. And what Cab managed to do was, as his career began to be slightly overtaken by the white swing bands, people like Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, the Dorsey Brothers, he and Irving Mills cooked up the idea of turning this slang into a dictionary. So they actually published something called Cab Calloway's Hepster's Dictionary, which had all the slang terms, well, actually not all of them, because most of the drug references were cut out, but nearly all the slang terms that they used when the band was on the road. And that became something that really, in lots of ways, was the, the starting point for a whole succession of African-American slang and jive talk that you can trace right the way through people like Slim Gaylord and Louis Jordan and then into the rhythm and blues era, then into soul, and you finally find it ending up in hip-hop with musicians who are actually influenced by Cab through this long line of passing on the baton of jive talk. And could you give us a few examples from the dictionary? It's always very difficult to think of those. I remember talking to musicians who had played with Cab 50 years before when I was in New York in the 80s. Uh, the guitarist Danny Barker would always talk about his box, which was his guitar, but a box was also a piano. It was an instrument with strings on. Hmm. What we would call an estate car or a wagon, they always referred to as a short. And so I remember the trumpeter Doc Cheatham, who'd been in the Callaway band, completely mystified the first time I met him by saying, oh, I've left my trumpet outside in the short. I had no idea what he was talking about. And these guys would keep the, the slang going. They all understood one another, and they'd never stopped understanding each other since the 30s. But for people like me coming in from the outside, it was a total mystery. I, um, I did take a glance at the dictionary online, or someone had excerpted some entries, and I found the word hip which they quoted as mean wise or sophisticated. And I was wondering if that's where hip first originated. I think it's one of the first attempts to define it, and you'll probably find that it was in Cab Calloway's dictionary before it has started appearing in places like Webster's. I think actually, just taking a diversion from music into linguistics, I think this book did a lot to help the editors of academic dictionaries actually put terms into their books that they'd never been able to define before. Hmm. So Cab unwittingly did a great service to preserving the kind of talk that was going on on the streets in the 30s. To wrap things up, as I understand it, Cab is pretty remarkable in that he had a career that really spanned his entire lifetime, performing right up until his death in 94. Is that right? Yes, I think he had to stop performing just the year before because he had a serious stroke during 1993 and that really put the end to his career. But he was performing from a wheelchair. Um, there are accounts in my book of him at the Apollo Theatre not long before he died 
still getting the crowd on their feet and shouting Heidi Ho with him when he was unable to stand. I mean, it's、mm. an amazing career that for somebody who'd been a dancer and a mover, he could still get an audience to its feet even when he himself was no longer able to dance. I mean, it's a really remarkable longevity in his career. Well, Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks, Michelle. And、uh, great to talk to you. And you as well. As we just learned, Calloway's running influence can be found everywhere today, in terms of language, fashion, and of course, music. But last week, I was curious to see if I could find any original Cab Calloway in New York City. I explained my mission to a few jazz-savvy friends, and they unanimously agreed that there was one man to see: Vince Giordano. I found him in the basement of the Edison Hotel at Sophia's restaurant. This restaurant, Sophia's, it's just one half a block off of Times Square. It's a really busy part of New York City. The entrance is like a speakeasy. It's really difficult to find, but once you're here, it's really snug and tucked away, and it's sort of like a From a different decade, you, know, you feel like you're really going back in time because it's、uh, decorated with old neon and just a different color and flavor. But it has a beautiful dance floor, so it's a lot of fun.、Um, I was wondering if you could describe the band playing tonight. Well, it's a big band. It's Eleven Piece Orchestra.、Uh, they play music of the 1920s and 30s. I've been following them for over 12 years, and it's a great, really fun, upbeat band. Lots of Dancing and beautiful lyrics, music—you just—it's very invigorating. That's Carol Hughes. She works the front door at Sophia's, and she's talking about Vince Giordano's band, the Nighthawks, who are about to start their eight o'clock show. The club is hardly recognizable from two hours ago, when the space was vacant of people, music, and platters of food landing on the white tablecloth. It was then, in that surreal quiet that happens right before doors open, that I had the chance to speak with Giordano. We chose a table stage right, and he cracked open a beer. Now I'm almost ready. <laughs> All right. And served me up a ginger ale from the bar. Okay. Cheers. And we began to chat. You've been in the business for quite some time. Did you ever have any run-ins with Cab along the way? Because he died pretty recently, 1994. Yes, I had the great pleasure of backing up Cab Calloway once. Oh, I guess about twenty years ago,、um, we were doing a benefit up in Connecticut, and they wanted our music, the Nighthawks' music, for dance purposes. And then they said we have also、uh, put Cab Calloway on the bill, and we'd like to have your band as the backup for for Cab.、And、I said, my goodness, this is great. So anyway, his scores were amazingly. Technical because they had a lot of jazz elements in them, and then、uh, there was a lot of sort of classical reading to it, like the Gershwin Summertime, and then he had um, his um, little moonwalking bit that was in there. On、uh, you, you saw him do the moonwalk. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, you know, when we finally got to the to the gig,、um, uh, Cab just came out. I, I never get a chance to meet him, which is kind of unfortunate. But that's the way he was. He was a very private man, and、um, I respected the way he wanted to be. And we backed him up, and then、uh, he did a little bit of uh, uh, with the audience, with the、uh, Minnie the Moocher, with the Heidi Ho, and, and back and forth. And then at the very end of the night, he thanked the band, and then he thanked the audience, and he says, "You've been." 
so super. And we're going to go into this uh, old religious song called When the Saints Go Marching In. And he got everybody singing and clapping and he had a standing ovation. You know, a person in show business for that long and still have that command, that's pretty remarkable. And what year was this? I would say this was probably about 1985 or 86. Now, I want to hear more about you and your story. Um, you're, you're renowned in New York and beyond for preserving the music of the 20s and 30s. I was wondering if you could tell me when this started for you. I got started in this music many, many years ago. I was five years old, and I went to my grandmother's for every holiday, and she had this wonderful old phonograph that had a collection of many thousands of phonograph records. And I would sit there as a kid, winding up the old gramophone, that's how they used to do it, and putting these very delicate platters on the machine and listening. What about it mesmerized you? What was it? Well, at that, in those years, in the 1950s, there was a lot of kind of saccharine music out there, very silly, how much is that doggy in the window, woof, woof, uh, oh my papa, you know, things that really had no, I don't know, excitement about it. They, it was pleasant music, it was wonderful uh, musicianship, but to compare it to this music of the, of the jazz age of the 1920s, there was just this mesmerizing beat. There was this syncopation. There was this excitement. There was this sort of electricity that was coming out of this old phonograph. And that's what I got turned on by. Uh, I became a musician and... Before coming to speak with Giordano, I learned that he also is sort of a movie star, having worked with film greats like Woody Allen, Sam Mendes, and now Martin Scorsese in the HBO series Boardwalk Empire. He kind of has the ultimate gig, getting roles where he essentially plays himself. And um, uh, doing the vintage films like uh, The Cotton Club and The Aviator, and now working on Boardwalk Empire for HBO. What are you doing there? We uh, appear as the band. I'm the band leader. I hate being pigeon kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And it's a great thrill to be part of that. I'm the band leader in there, and my band is on, on the set, and then we do a lot of background music for that show, too, when they need some vintage music in, in a new, fresh way. We're there to recreate it for them. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit more about your experience on the show when you were invited to be a part of the show? What went through your head? Well, um, the folks who hired me for Boardwalk Empire were the same folks that I worked for with uh, The Aviator. They came to me and they said, there's this new show being put together on HBO and it's set at the dawn of Prohibition, which is 1919. Would you be interested? And I said, are you kidding? Of course I would. This is my whole life. When I started reading some of the scripts and, and seeing all the attention to detail that these folks put into the costuming, the, the cars, the recreation of the ballrooms, the, well, the violence is a little bit, you know, a lot for me. But the choice of music and their whole desire to recapture the very flavor and feel of the era, I, I was just in heaven. And could you maybe recall one experience on set well, there were many experiences on set. Um, 
some of them being very long, long days, working with Martin Scorsese, we got a call to be there a little bit after 12 noon. I said, okay, that's nice. We were released 5.30 the next morning. It just went on and on. I don't know where he has this energy. He's, okay, let's do another take. And we weren't on all the time, and we had, we had breaks and stuff, but we recorded our tracks before so we didn't have to worry about you know messing up our music our music was all set and we'll still pantomime to the music that we recorded this way they can get all the dialogue really strong is that a funny experience sitting up there pantomiming well you get to goof around a little bit because you really don't have to uh, pay attention to really the right notes because the no- all the right notes are on the soundtrack already so you get to really goof around and you get to poke a guy next to you and wave to people in the audience you know that are you know you get to be a real actor in a ham which guys did back then guys and gals playing in bands in the 1920s and 30s once they knew the arrangement they'd have fun and you know be really loose so we were loose we were like part of the part of the uh, drunken scene <laughs> And where were you at? Was it just a, a bar or? No, the um, scene that the scenes that we did uh, for this club called Babette's, I'm the band leader at Babette's, is actually shot in um, Brooklyn in an old church. And this was the their rec hall, their recreation hall. Could you describe like what you were, what you had to wear to get into character? Oh, well, they really went after the old uh, uh, tuxedos and these tuxedos in the little side corner pocket here would have little name tags some of them did with the person's name and the date and some of these tuxedos were really made around 1919 1920 1921 they're heavy woolen tuxedos people had their names sewn in their tuxedos is that was that a thing then i guess so it was made specially for you know mr j jones or mr p smith whoever they were you know these these were very high class tuxedos and the um, shirt that we wore was very strange they had buttons in the back so you had to have a dresser, so to speak, someone to help you get into this shirt. And then you have a, a separate collar that, again, was fitted with all kinds of buttons. And it's impossible. I think back then, either you had to, had to have a roommate or be married to someone to get dressed because you could not get dressed by yourself. It was impossible. <laughs> and is there going to be season two for Boardwalk? Yeah, yeah, they have contacted me, and we're talking about 1921. That's the next year that's happening, and um, picking out some music. I haven't seen the script yet, so I really don't know what is going to be used. Well, I look forward to seeing you on that. Thank you so much for the interview. Thank you. And what's on the set list tonight? Any Cab Calloway? Well, actually, we are going to play one of the tunes that was written for him, by the great Harold Arlen, wonderful tune called Trickeration, that uh, was exciting to hear Cab do it back in the 1930s. We're gonna we're gonna take a chance with it too. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, here they are: Vince Giordano's Nighthawks.
Thank you so much for listening today. If you want to learn more about the things discussed in the podcast, you can visit the OUP blog at blog.oup.com. And just in case you're wondering, according to Cab Calloway's Hepster Dictionary, trickeration means strutting your stuff. Enjoy the rest of the song.